I was 15 years old, and my, my grandfather, who was about 70 years old, and I went fishing. We used to go fishing a lot together, and that was really like quality time for me to be with my grandfather. So let me tell you a little bit about my grandfather. He came over to this country from Sicily uh, when he was 20 years old, and, uh, and he was a commercial fisherman, and uh, so fishing was a, like a big part of his life. And so hanging out with my grandfather and just going down to local fishing holes or out to the ocean was really like a fun time. So this particular day, we went to our favorite fishing hole in Gilroy, where I lived at the time, uh, at a place called Yuba's Creek, and we were fishing for steelhead. Uh, and so my, my grandfather immediately hooked into a real big one, and it was like super exciting. We were the only two that were there, and uh, it bro- the steelhead broke his line, and so was, we're all, you know, adrenalized and everything, like, oh, what a great moment. Let's, let's get another one. So he cast back out, and you know, the sooner it cast out when a game warden comes up behind us. Now, for those of you who did not grow up around hunting or fishing, and you're like, what does a game warden do? So the game warden is like, sort of like the sheriff to enforce the rules. Like if you go hunting, you know, you have to hunt in season. And if you go fishing, you have limits on fish, and there's, you know, fishing season. So this guy comes up behind us, and we're like, we turn around. He kind of caught us off guard, and he was visibly angry. And, and he looks at us, and, and he says, you guys are fishing out of season, which... I didn't know, and I know my grandfather didn't know, but it was really like, uh-oh, we are in big trouble, and those fines are huge for, the, for that kind of stuff. So, um, my, my, so my grandfather is a very, very godly man. I mean, this is a guy that gets up, used to get up 4 o'clock every morning to pray, to read his Bible. I was with him on numerous occasions when he would be, we'd be at a pier somewhere, and he would always share his faith. He was always talking about the Jesus. Uh, he had a really thick Italian accent. And the Jesus of this and the Jesus of that, you know. So, I mean, the guy just loved God with all of his heart. But he did something different this day. And it was really, it was a reaction to fear. So this game warden is there, and, and uh, he's really upset. And he's trying to get my grandfather to talk to him. And my grandfather speaks English, but in this particular time, the situation, he's not speaking English. He's only speaking Italian. And I'm, I'm trying to sort of figure it out. I'm like, why isn't Grandpa speaking English? And then, you know, probably a couple of minutes into this, and really the, the game warden's getting super upset, it dawns on me, oh, okay. Uh, he's, he, you know, he's trying to get out of this. And, and so he's kind of cooked up this little scheme, like I know speak English, right, thing. And, and, and so I know that he speaks English, and I'm thinking, oh, so I, I get sort of caught up in the plot, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay, we're, we're going to do this. And... Um, after a while, the game warden just gets so angry and, and so frustrated, he just finally goes, just get out of here, and he leaves. And so it worked, right? However, how do you think that that little deception played out for a 15-year-old kid? Who at that moment, the, the impression I got was, oh, I get it. When you're in a, in a tight spot like this, when you're in a real fix, then it's okay to do something like that, Right? So, and so that, what I want to talk about, that's really kind of what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about fear and, and how fear affects our, our life. In fact, all of us deal with fear. I mean, all of us deal with fear at some level. And, and so let's just talk about the different kind of fears that, that there are. For instance, um, I uh, wanted to get a running definition of fear, almost kind of, a, I'm just going to say it's kind of a clinical definition. How many of you have ever heard Amy speak here? Amy comes to our campus once in a while, and she's our, a psychologist. She's got an Ivy League degree. She's a very smart girl. 
Uh, and so she's part of our sermon team. And so we said to Amy, hey, Amy, can you give us a clinical definition of fear? And so she broke it down into three categories. It's uh, fight, flight, or freeze. So let me just, because the next three weeks, this is what we're going to be talking about. So she, she put it this way. God has hardwired our brains so that when we're fearful, we respond so that we respond to fear. Fear can be helpful, a helpful thing because it tells us that we need to pay attention and respond. As our bodies become more aroused, we move into a hyperarousal that has us choose between fight or flight. Am I going to punch the bully? Am I going to run from the bully? Typical symptoms of hyperarousal increase are increased blood pressure, heart rate, fuel availability, uh, adrenaline, oxygen, circulation of vital organs, and pupil size, decreased digestion. And then, so she breaks it in. So flight, movement away, panic, fear, anxiety, worry, running. Okay, uh, fight, movement towards, rage, anger, irritation, frustration. And then finally, this other category, which is freeze, and that is uh, disassociation, numbness, depression, conservation of energy, helplessness, shame, sh- just shutting down, hopelessness, preparation for death, trapped. So everybody got that? So those are, those are different ways that we respond to, to fear. And, and the question is, what does God do? Or how, what is, how does he want us to respond to fear? And, and he wants us to respond uh, in a way that reflects who we are, reflects that we are Christ followers, that we have a relationship with God. Now, when it, when it comes to fear, how many would you, of you would say some fears are irrational? Right? You ever, you ever have like? And, and, and so I have this one fear, and that's it. I'm a little bit uh, claustrophobic. Anybody claustrophobic here? Okay. I, and, and not like incredibly, but there's this one thing that just scares me half to death, and that's the MRI um, machine tube thing. Anybody ever been in one of those things before? And like, so I've been in one, and, but not fully. I've been up to about right here, and I mean, you know, I was freaking out, just literally just thinking, I, I just, you know, shaking, and, and just the idea of being encapsulated completely, I, I can't even tolerate. And so my biggest fear is that one day they'll say, uh, Steve, you have to go to the MRI machine, completely be in that tube. And I know that if that ever happens, I will be knocked out because you are not going to get me inside that thing without knocking me out. I mean, and that, that's one of, the, one of the fears that I have. But, but there are other kind of fears, like other phobias. I, uh, have you ever heard of the autophobia? See, a lot, you're immediately thinking, oh, that's like the driving fear. No, actually it means a fear of being alone. And, and so here's where fear can get kind of irrational. Some people are so freaked out by the idea of being alone that they will stay in an abusive relationship where they are being physically abused, physically and verbally abused, and they would rather do that than be alone. And it, from our persp- like, perspective, we're like, that makes no sense at all. But see, that's what fear does. Fear translates into, into doing things that are sometimes not even rational. Do you know what the number one fear is every time they take a poll right across the board? Anybody know what it is? No? It's what I'm doing right now. It's public speaking. 74% of people, I said, that's my number one fear of public speaking. Which means that, that, as Jerry Seinfeld has said, that if you're ever at a funeral, more people would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. It's just, just one of those, those fear things, Right? And, and, and so today, we're going to talk about uh, how to deal with fear in, in, in a God way, and we're going to talk about it through a story. It's a great story. For the next three weeks, 
We're going to be focusing on the life of, of David, who is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. And so if you have your Bibles, would you please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 20. And let me say a couple things about David, first of all. I love this guy, David, because he gives me hope. Like few characters give me hope in the Bible. Yes, he was uh, the shepherd boy who wrote many of the Psalms. Yes, he was the one that faced down a giant. Uh, yes, he became a, a war hero. Um, he became the greatest king that Israel would ever know. I mean, there's so many good things you can say about Israel, but that's not why I love him. <laughs> why I love him is because there was this other side of David. And if you ever, you know, when I was growing up in, in church, they would have little, like, stories of David. It was always the good David. You know, David and Goliath and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, oh, yes. And, and then I, when I became an adult and I went to seminary and I started reading his story over and over, I went, this guy is jacked up. I mean, if you read his story, I mean, he is one of the most, he's one of the messiest characters in the Bible. I mean, I, and so I read that. This, this is why it gives me hope. Because in the Bible, there is a statement that is made in the Old Testament and in the New Testament about David. And the statement is this, and it's just a mind-blowing statement. And the statement is, David is a man after God's own heart. David was a man after God's own heart. And I, I look at that, and I'm like, what? He was involved in murder, in all kinds of lying and plotting. I mean, that's just, I mean, you know, you read it, and you're like, wow. And, and, and so that gives me hope that a guy who could screw up as much as David it could be said of him that he was a man after God's own heart. And, and the reason that he was a man of, of after God's own heart is because David always came back to God. He always came back to God. And he loved God, even though, you know, he messed up quite a bit. So before we get into this, let me give you the backdrop of what's happening. David is not king yet. As a matter of fact, he's on the run uh, from his father-in-law. His father-in-law is King Saul, who's the first king of Israel. And his father-in-law is incredibly, uh, in fact, insanely jealous of David. Now, David, by this time, has become a war hero. Uh, his fame is spread about, you know, him beating Goliath. Uh, and so what's happened is that he's become so popular that they have made up songs about him. And so the number one hit, apparently, back then, is this song about that Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Well, Saul gets wind of this, and he, he wants to take out his son-in-law, David. And so by the time that we pick the story up here, he's already attempted to kill David a couple of times. He's throwing a spear at him. He, he's just angry, and he just wants to make sure that he kills his son-in-law, David. And one more thing, Saul's son, Jonathan, is David's best friend. So the plot thickens, okay? Um, it, Jonathan was a, a war hero in his own right. So you got these two mighty men of God, and they're, they're war heroes, uh, and so they're, they're best friends. So let's pick it up. Verse 1. And then David fled from Naoth at Ramah, and he went to Jonathan, and he asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? So you can already see the situation. Never, Jonathan replied. You're not going to die. Look, look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It, it isn't so. But David took an oath and he said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And, and um, he had said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there's only a step between me and death. 
And Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. And so David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I'm supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him. Now, this is where the first time you see it in David's life, a deception begins. Now, you can't blame him because he's trying to save his own skin, so he's beginning to devise a plan here. But David, so he says, if your father misses me at all, tell him. David earnestly asked for my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his clan. If he says very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he's determined to harm me. And as for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. And if I'm guilty, Jonathan, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go into the field. And so they went in the field together. So how, how, do, we, how do we react to fear in a godly way? How do we react in, to fear without going crazy without doing something irrational? Because a lot of times when we act out of fear, it's a reaction. It's a reactionary kind of a thing. And, and it's, we're, not, we're not thinking it through in a literal sense. We almost kind of lose our mind sometimes when it comes to, to the kind of fear that we can have in our life. And, and there's all kinds of different fears. So just for the sake of, of everybody in the room and maybe different scenarios that might be played out in your life right now, there's like, for instance, the fear that's maybe inside a divorce that's going on. And I only say that because... As I've talked to people who have gone through divorce, I see so much fear in their life. Like, am I going to get cleaned out financially? Will I always be alone? And, uh, maybe there's the fear, like, I, I, I've never been married, and I don't know if I'll ever get married. There's that kind of fear that I talk to people sometimes. There, there's the fear of, um, I'm, my career was going good until now, and I have this person who's over me, and they're making my life miserable and I, I don't know, you know what to do about this, and I'm getting angry, and I'm either going to fight or I'm going to run. I, I, I don't know what to do. I mean, you, you think about all the different, in our lifetime, all the different crazy situations that develop, and then it, fear comes up in our, in our heart. And when we act out of fear, sometimes we just do crazy stuff. And that's, that's what we're talking about. And this, this, this story will show us kind of what, what not to do. So what are the, some of the things that we can do, the choices that, that we can make? Well, here's how David begins. Now, again, who would ever blame David for lying a little bit, right? Who would ever say, well, you know, can, can you blame the guy? I mean, he's, he's got to do something. But we're going to see that what he does is actually going to lead towards something else eventually that's, that's not, not real good. He, so here's the plan, you know. Hey, just, just, just tell your dad that I went over to Bethlehem. It's going to be okay. He'll, you know, it'll be fine. So it, it's an outright lie, but, you know, you, you, you can kind of understand. Kind of just like in our culture today, I mean, let's be real with each other. How many of us have what we would call acceptable lies that we'll tell? Convenient lies. And so I wrote down what I call common lies in our culture. You guys ready for this? All right. I only had one beer. Sorry, I forgot. No, not really. Traffic was nuts. No, it wasn't. I was just late. I had to say something. 
Here's a big one. It's not you, it's me. No, it really was you. I just didn't have the guts to say it. Uh, I already did that. No, you didn't. Oh, I'm on my way. You haven't even gotten the shower yet. You're not on your way. I mean, come on. These are like, we, we, just, we just like don't even think twice about it. We just kind of wink at it. We go, oh, come on. It's not a lie. That yeah, is. A lie is a lie is a lie. Um, my phone died. Actually, I just didn't want to talk to you. Um, it's so great to see you. I'm not going to even talk about that one. I remember you. I haven't the foggiest idea who you are, but I'm thinking really fast. You know, see, the problem with this, I, I, I call it the slippery slope. So you begin to move into the area of deception, and you go, well, it's no big deal, right? Convenient lies. But then it begins to develop into more lies because it, it got me out of a tough spot, right? It, it, I, I didn't want to hurt their feelings. I, you know, I didn't want to be in trouble. And, and, and so it moves into that. And, you know, I, I think one of the greatest fears I have is not that I'll lie to you because I don't want to ever do that, but I have a feeling that if I kind of get into this lying thing, at some point, I'll start lying to me. And that would be scary. Have you ever known people that lie to themselves? And it's just so evident. Say, again, in our culture, lies kind of, certain lies are, are acceptable. But lies never go anywhere good. I remember many, many years ago, I was talking to a woman, uh, and she had grown up in East Germany with the Berlin Wall, you know. And I was fascinated. I was like, wow, what was that like? You know, and, and, and so... She began to tell me about life, you know, in East Germany and, and, and with a wall and everything. And, and at some point, she said, and she got really kind of, like she had this sort of visceral reaction at some point. She said, the whole system was built on lies. Everything was a lie. I was like, wow. I mean, to me, I look at that and I say, see, lies never go anywhere good. And when we're afraid, and this is why we're talking about this, like, we'd all go, yeah, lying's not a, not a good thing, but if you're in a tough spot, you know, if it's convenient, if it's going to get you a little, out of a little bit of trouble, like my grandpa was in with the game warden, then it's okay to lie. But actually, actually, it's not. So what happens with David? He begins to scheme. So he's already said, you know, he's told a little fib, no, no big deal. But now it begins to plot a little bit. Verse, verse 12. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the God, the Lord of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. And if he's favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you the word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me... Show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. Now, this next verse, 15, is a very telling verse, and it tells you about the culture of the time. You've you got to be happy that you live in the 21st century. Now, this is ancient biblical times, and, you know, when, one, when we vote for a new president, you know, so the old administration leaves and they go off to, 
settle into the sunset and have their careers or whatever. It didn't work that way back then. So when the old administration went out, guess what happened to them? They got butchered. They got killed. So every kingdom that would come in would kill everybody that was a part of the last kingdom. This is why in verse 15 he says, And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's, uh, David's enemies from the face of the earth. And so what, what Jonathan is saying, look, I know you're going to be ki- become king one day. Please don't kill my family. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan and David reaffirmed his oath out of love for him and because he loved him as he loved himself. These guys were blood brothers. They were, they were tight. So it moves from, you know, a lie and now it becomes a, a full-blown scheme. And then it, it kind of moves to the next level, which is basically uh, you, you begin to, you have a, a plan and you get more people involved in the plan. Because li- lies are never just about one person. They're about the other person, and then there are about, about more people. So what happens next? Well, let's see, verse 18. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is a new moon fe- feast, and you're going to be missed because your seat will be empty. And the day after tomorrow, toward evening, go to the place where you hid when the trouble began and wait by the stone uh, Edsel. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. And then I will, now I want you to catch this part because I never ever noticed this. I never thought about this until I read the story this time. He said, then I will send a boy and say, go find the arrows. And if I say to him, look, the arrows are on the side of you, uh, bring them here and then come because as surely as the Lord lives, you're safe and there's no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I have discussed, remember the Lord is witness between you and me forever. The boy. The boy. It, it seems so innocent, right, to bring this little boy into the situation. Maybe they paid him a few bucks and they said, hey, little boy, you know, uh, just we're going to shoot some arrows and they, they give him the plan, right? No big deal. It seems until crazy Saul, who's half out of his mind with jealousy, finds out that maybe that little boy was involved. What do you think Saul is going to do that little boy? He's going to have that little boy murdered. Now, that's a very extreme example. But what I'm saying is when you and I get other people involved in our lives, it hurts other people. Let me give you another example. And we're not going to talk about chapter 21, which is the next part of the events. But Paul begins to move deeper and deeper into deception in the next part of this story. And what happens as a result of... Now, and he's doing it to save his own skin, right? If you read the story, you're like, well, man, you know, he, he had to do something, right? So he tells more lies, but as a result, 85 priests get murdered and an entire community is wiped off the face of the earth. And at one point, Paul owns it. He goes, oh, I, I didn't mean to do that, I, and, but that's what happens. In the Bible, Ephesians chapter 6 it talks about the armor of God. Some of you have read that before. And the Apostle Paul is describing a, a centurion soldier. And he's using metaphor, obviously. But when he talks about being covered by the armor of God, the very pr- first piece of armament that he talks about is the belt of truth. And what's interesting about the armament is all of the other pieces are hinged to that. that if that belt of truth isn't there, nothing else functions properly. It all just kind of doesn't work. That's what truth is right there. Truth is that. 
That, that when we get away from truth, remember Jesus said, you shall know the truth and it'll set you free. Jesus said, I am the truth. Okay. But in times of fear, it kind of gets away from us, doesn't it? And believe me, I'm, I'm not coming after you. I'm coming after me too. I'm just saying, why is it that when we get all afraid and, you know, it's like somehow truth doesn't seem so relevant anymore. Well, you just got to do what you got to do. You got to say what you got to say. This story teaches us that if we treat truth that way, if we make light of truth, it never ends well. You know, you know one of the beautiful things about being a truth teller is you don't have to remember that well. But if you're a liar, you always have to remember. Oh, what did I say? How did I construct it? Some, just Something just so beautiful about that. What happens is ultimately when we begin to plot and lie and things, we end up hiding in fear. This is exactly what happens to David. So David hid in the field. And, and so what's a person to do, right? You say, okay, I, I've definitely told some lie. Maybe you're right now you're in the middle of something and it's scaring you half to death and so you've lied a little bit and you've maybe schemed and plotted and it's getting gnarly. It's just not working well and you're thinking, oh man, this is turning out really bad. I never meant for it to turn out like this. What, what, what am I going to do? So here's what David does. Uh, and not, this is not uh, to, about this story, but David is involved in another really bad situation. And in Psalm 51, he says this. He says, for I know my transgressions. And so you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. He takes responsibility for what he did. And that is the beginning of a journey back to truth. That is the, the beginning of, of you and I, maybe, again, we, we just got into this sort of loosey-goosey thing of, well, you know, I, yeah, I'm going to lie once in a while, and it's okay if it gets me out of, a, out of a tight spot, whatever. But owning it. David just would always own it. And he'd go, no, no, I screwed up, man. My sin, my bad. I did it. I said it. The Bible says, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. That's what you do right there. That's what you do right there. You, you just come back, you got, I'm going to own it, I'm responsible for it, and then you receive forgiveness, and, and you move on, back towards truth. So we go back to the original question, what does God call us to do when we're full of fear, and we, we are tempted to lie, we are tempted to be deceitful and, and, and scheme. So you move towards God. So there's something that I noticed in this whole story about David that I hadn't noticed until I really dived deep into it. And it was this. When, it, when David first faced like the, the first great test of his life, I would have to say it was against Goliath. And when he faced Goliath, he relied solely on God. If you read the story, he faces off the giant and he's not, he's not trusting anybody else. He's, he's not relying on anybody else. He's relying on God. And then if you continue to follow the story of David, pretty soon he becomes this great warrior. He becomes a war hero. Uh, he has skills. You know, he's got fighting skills. Pretty soon he's got coalitions. He's got people around him. You know, and he, he knows how to do all these things. But as you, if you follow his story, more and more, less and less he trusts on God, and more and more he trusts in himself. And now it's turned into plotting and scheming and deception, which is not just affecting David, it's affecting all the people around him. Um, one of the things that I've done, and I've, I've shared this throughout the years, 
Every year, uh, right around the first of the year, I, I, look, I ask God to give me a word for the year, and it's been so powerful in my life, super powerful. Um, so last year, the word was planning. I, I just, so I'll spend two or three days and just do long walks and just take some extra time. And, and I always say, and I, was, I was taught this by somebody that said it was effective in their life, and it's been such a blessing. I, I encourage you to do this. I said, God, give me a word for the year. Um, the year before that, it was engage. And so, like, and I, that just meant a lot to me. It would take some time to explain why that meant so much to me. So this last year, I was doing the same thing. Uh, and I, I, as I was seeking the Lord about this word, I have to tell you that my life has been filled with a lot of fear. Uh, it's mostly relational fear. It's the financial fear. There's a whole bunch of stuff, and I've shared some of this before. My, my, my wife and I are in process of the acquisition of my late parents' home, but it comes attached with a whole bunch of dynamics and issues and my siblings and all kinds of stuff is going on. And it's just been really, really difficult two years of our life. Um, so I'm seeking a word. I'm God, what's the word? And, and so I started, a lot of times when I get a word, it'll just be real quick, but this time it wasn't coming. And finally, I began to get the word. I was praying about it. It was, it was faith. And so I immediately went, oh, I get it. Like, so you want me to have greater faith? And it was, I just felt the Lord say, no, that's, that's not it. Oh, I'm on the wrong track. So I, I continued to pray, and then it, it became more to me. It was like faithful. And I'm like, got it, got it. You want me to be more faithful. And the Lord was saying, no, that's not it. And so I'm like, well, where is this going? And then, just like an epiphany, the Lord came in and he said, I am faithful. Steve, it's no longer about you. It's about me. I am faithful. I, it, was, it was like peace like a river, man. It came into me when I received that. It was like, Steve, you've been striving. You've been trying. You've been running. You've been afraid. And in that moment, I realized God was saying, Steve, I got you. I got your back. I am faithful. That was so powerful in, in my life. See, that, that's really, ultimately, whatever you're going through, whatever you fear, God is saying that to all of us all the time. He's saying, I am faithful. You can, you can trust me. Now, a lot of times when David was on the run, David would write psalms. He was very famous for writing these. And these are basically songs that were very poetic. And so uh, it is thought by, by biblical scholars that this is one of the psalms that he wrote when he was running from Saul. And, and so if you have your Bibles, one more time, we're just going to read a few verses and we'll be finished. Um, I want you to, to check this out. Psalm 27. And just, we're going to look at just the first part of the first verse. He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? That's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Who do you fear? What is scaring you? Because Paul, I mean, David, in this particular moment, David is saying, Look it, I'm afraid. But in this moment, I'm looking up. I'm looking to God, and I'm realizing he's the one that can calm my fears. And if I have God on my side, you know, I took a, I took a giant down. I've, I've, I've been in wars and battles. When I got God on my side, I'm, I know I'm, I'm going to be okay. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom 
shall I fear. And what, what it really means is that we, we understand that God is powerful, way more powerful than we are. He has resources we don't have, and he'll come to our aid. And, and then he goes to the next part of the scripture, and he talks about God's strength to lead him into peace. I don't know about you, but when I'm afraid, there is no peace in my life. Man, when I'm afraid, I'm stressed out. I have a hard time sleeping. You know, uh, my health isn't what I want it to be. And I'm sure that David is experiencing all those things. And so he says, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me or devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. And though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though a war break out against me, even then, I will be confident. You're saying, Steve, how can I be confident? You don't know what I'm going through. God does. Do you trust that God is big enough and powerful enough that God knows enough to get involved in your situation to be your strength so that you don't have to act out in the kind of fear that turns into lying and plotting and running and hiding? Do you believe that? That he will give you a peace. And then finally, you've got to refocus on God through worship. And David is one of the greatest worshipers of all times. I mean, this, this guy knows how to worship. So, verses 4 and 5, check this out. He says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, and to seek Him in the temple. For in the day of trouble, He will help me, He will keep me safe in His dwelling, and He will hide me in the shelter of His sacred tent, and set me high upon a rock. What is worship, anyway? When I pray, I'm probably like 99% of you. When I pray, I find that lots of the prayers are about me. But worship is something entirely different. Worship is when I take the focus off of me and I begin to put the focus on God. And I begin to acknowledge who God is. I begin to acknowledge what God has done for me. I begin to play back in my mind the times that he's got me through all kinds of crazy stuff. And, I, and, and in those moments, I feel, as David said, I find confidence. I find peace. I, I, I find strength. It's, it's really about the three R's. You've got to remember God's power. Rely on God's strength and refocus on God. And worship is one of the ways that we do it. This is, this is uh, an aspect of worship. Um, I, I love some of the songs that you picked out, Lucy, you and your team, because they really they deal with fear. Um, for some of you, you worship in a different way. We don't ever want to pigeonhole anybody into saying, well, this is how you worship. There's different ways you worship. For some people, it is uh, just getting to a quiet, beautiful place, and that's worship for you. And some, it's just nature. And uh, For other people, there's just different ways that you have of, of connecting with God. But in this moment, if you find yourself full of fear, maybe you're going through something that's really, really tough and it, it's taken away your peace, um, I, just, I, would like, I would just encourage you in this moment to find a way to experience God right now, whatever that looks like, to sing, to take a knee, um, take a walk if you need to, whatever. But just find a way because God wants to connect with you and he wants you to turn to him, not to some other crazy way of trying to get out of a situation you're in, okay? So let me pray for you and then we're going to sing a little bit. Father, life is hard. 
That's all there is to it. Life is just hard. And, and, and sometimes, you know, everything's going great, but then we get afraid, and, and something happens, and sometimes we, we didn't see it coming, and, and we've got to deal with it. And, and sometimes we have to make quick decisions, and, and in light of that, because we experience fear, sometimes we don't handle it well. And, and sometimes we begin to move in the area of, of lies and deception. And we would collectively ask, God, give us courage not to do that. Forgive us when we do it. And help us to always trust you. And Lord, I pray that in this moment right now, that if there's anybody who's just in a very difficult place, maybe they're panicking right now, full of fear, help that person. Help them to know that, that they can turn to you, that you will be their strength, you'll be their power. You've got this, God. But help them to know that. Break into their reality right now, whatever the situation is. And God, may they experience the peace that surpasses all our, even our understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name.